Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 18. <clears throat> uh, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, Jake, uh, Eric, and Darden, and band. Um, Kiddos, if you would like to, uh, we do have EGC, Elementary Gospel Community, this morning. Uh, Also, Elevate, first and second grade. And uh, we'll clear up a little bit of space in here. And uh, try to get this all set up. Uh, This morning we are going to, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a preview this morning of of what we're going to do. And I'm going to hand these to my wife real quick. You want that? This is how we, ha- if, if I don't do stuff immediately, I forget. So that's what that was. Anyway, uh, this morning, I'm, let me give you a little bit of a preview of what we're going to uh, do this morning and then also into the future. We're going to wrap up uh, our sermon series through the Apostles' Creed this morning. Um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, so we'll be finishing that. However, uh, next week is Memorial Day, and uh, which I would encourage you, if you uh, own a grill or by any means of uh, preparing food, uh, that you would be active in inviting somebody over, or some, you see somebody this morning that looks, that maybe you've seen a couple times before, maybe have them over and say, hey, we got time next week, everybody gets a day off, you should come over for a barbecue, or you should come over and hang out, or Whatever, it's a great opportunity, or just in your neighborhood, invite friends over, or invite yourself over to a friend's house, or whatever you need to do. Um, find a way uh, next weekend to get together with people, family, friends, neighbors, uh, fellow fugies, and uh, get together and listen and engage and value uh, these, the, your friends and your neighbors, value their dignity and their worth, hear their stories, learn more about them, be the presence of God uh, to them. And, um, uh, yeah, so Memorial Day is a great opportunity to do that. Also, for us, next week, uh, we are going to have 
uh, a time of, of, of Q&R, a question and response. Uh, so if you have questions, if there's anything that has struck your interest over the last uh, couple of months through the Apostles' Creed that you want some more clarification on or you'd like to hear more about or some confusion over or, you know, resources for where to look further, we're going to do that next, next week. We'll have a brief uh, homily, but then uh, most of our time for the sermon will be a time of question and response. So it'll be interactive. And then over the summer, uh, Garth gave a little preview to this. We're going to have a class. Uh, Cindy Atkinson is going to lead with, a, with a, um, uh, some DVD help, but we are going to be... <laughs> We're going to be in Leviticus 23 over the summer. Yeah? Yeah. This is how you grow a church. Um, Leviticus 23 is the list of feasts and rhythms that God has given his people to celebrate throughout the year. And so over the summer, we're going to go through, there are seven feasts, seven practices, rhythms, and we're going to look at why God brought these to his people how do we celebrate? What were, they, what were the origins of some of these? Why would we still, why would we still acknowledge these today? Uh, and in all of those things, see how the substance belongs to Christ. Uh, but these are practices and rhythms that we are given as gifts from God to remember often because we're so quick to forget. So uh, that'll be, we'll start that in June. Uh, this week, again, we're going to finish up. We're going to hit the last two lines of the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and of life everlasting. Um, <clears throat> and and uh, we have the great rapture verse in, from thir- First Thessalonians to tackle, and, and hopefully you're all sitting there going, I wonder how he's going to pull this off. Uh, let me just ease your minds. I'm not. Um, when I was a kid, I had this weird memory of uh, when I was a kid. My dad was a youth minister, and, and he was a really, really good one. And one time he let me go with him. He took a group of high school students to the Cardinal game, and he let me go with him. And I, I, don't, I have no idea how old I was. It must have been ele- uh, elementary school, um, maybe. But I, I just had this memory, and the game, there must have been a rain delay or extra innings or whatever. My father did not leave early from baseball games. Uh, he, and he did not instill that in me because I'm like the, I am totally the progressive commercial where I'm making plans to beat traffic before we get into the stadium. Um, and, uh, but he would not, he did not leave games early. And so, uh, I remember we're riding home on this, on the bus and the clock had struck midnight. It was a Friday night game and the clock had struck midnight and I felt like super cool because I, here I was this young kid, but I was hanging out with all the teenagers And all of a sudden, all the cool kids, they started talking about tomorrow. Conversation turned to tomorrow. And and they said, you know, tomorrow, don't forget, we have church tomorrow. Tomorrow's Sunday. And I remember being just utterly confused. Not only confused, but distraught. What happened to my Saturday? Like, did I lose was this punishment for staying out late? Is this what you forfeit? Is this what grown-ups have to do when you go out and do you lose a whole day? And I just remember being in despair. Like, and, and finally, somebody took time to explain to me, here's the deal. When the clock strikes midnight, technically, the calendar date turns to the next day. So you still have Saturday, which I still, I, I kind of got, but I was a little like, well, well, like the whole Saturday, um, and, uh, and I, was, I was still confused, uh, but it made sense to me. 
I was unaware of, I was ignorant of where I was in time and space and what tomorrow brought, and not knowing those things brought despair. When somebody explained it to me, I was, it was such a measure of relief. Ah, okay, okay, all right. Not that I didn't not want to go to church, hear that. I mean, I was a kid, right? And uh, when somebody explained it to me, it was such a relief. I was ignorant of what was taking place. Um, and then when I, when I learned, that was helpful and hopeful. Paul, in this letter, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. He's writing to this Thessalonian church. He's been with them for a time. Thessalonica was a Roman province. It had, um, it, it had a, 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 made up of a lot of Romans, uh, pagan worshipers, um, emperor worship, just basically Greco-Roman religion. And not only that, uh, it did have uh, a significant amount of Egyptians uh, and a significant amount of Jews. And when Paul would make a practice, whenever he would go to a city, he would first go into the synagogue and preach the message of Jesus in the synagogue to the Jews first, and then he would go out from there and talk to Gentiles. And there was a large, there was a large group of both Jew and Gentile that converted uh, and, and switched their allegiance to Jesus. Paul is writing over and over again, these people are facing a, a, a decent measure of persecution uh, in Thessalonica. And um, in fact, they're being brought up on charges and they're being brought before some of the Roman governors. And Paul talks often about the return of Christ, the establishment of this new kingdom, this kingdom of God that's coming. And Paul, at this point in time, Paul is like, Christ, Jesus could return any day now. You can see as, as time goes along, Paul's kind of like, okay, we... We got, we're playing the long game here. He may come back any day now, but, but, but also we've got to figure out how to be married and how to like, interact here and, and all this stuff. But Paul's anticipation for Christ's return was like, it could happen any time. And when he's talking in Thessalonica, he's telling the Thessalonian believers, Christ's return could happen any time. And then they get really concerned because people are being killed. Followers of Jesus are being killed. And they're like, what happens to them? What happens if they die before Jesus returns? And so that's what they write to ask Paul about, which he's going, to, um, he's going to address here in this passage that we're looking. Uh, and um, the question basically is, is there something beyond this? Is there more than this? What, what else uh, is happening? So there's a whole lot of really good stuff to see this morning, um, not only from this passage, but just the whole idea of what we believe when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body. Um, some of it's going to be fun. Uh, some of it's probably going to be new. Uh, and, uh, I, but I really love it. And I think this is of utmost importance. Uh, and it's something that we miss in our day. It's something that we often, um, we don't understand not only the importance of the resurrection, but what it means for our, for our life today. So we're going to get into the text uh, Paul starts off in verse 13. He says this, We don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Um, I, I want to make this assertion. Uh, it may or may not be true, and that's okay. Uh, but I think it's true. Um, and it, this will, will kind of uh, wash out here at the end when, when we talk about this. 
I think in our day, uh, we have a really, really, really horrible theology of death. I think we just have a really bad theology, practice, cultural belief um, when it comes to death. In fact, uh, we are consumer-driven, we are capitalistic, all of those things, and definitely that infiltrates the church. We're foolish to not think that it does. Um, and uh, w- I, I would contend that we spend most of our time um, completely avoiding the topic, if at all possible. Not dealing with it at all. Um, and we are very much more about like sucking the marrow out of life, life to the fullest, carpe diem, uh, all of that stuff. YOLO, um, before, before one day you're pushing up daisies. And then you go to nearly every funeral, uh, and, and at nearly every funeral, regardless of creed or religion or whatever anybody believes, we are quite certain that they are in a better place. We don't have a theology for that better place. We don't really know what that means. We don't talk about it. We don't give any kind of explanation of what better place and why and how, but we are generally pretty confident that they are in a better place. They're in that great smoke-filled bowling alley in the sky. They are in that brothel in the air. I don't know, like, I, and I, I, that off script, sorry. It doesn't matter, and, and very rarely does this concept of death affect our view of life. In fact, if anything, in our consumer-driven life, the concept of death fuels our consumerism. In our day, I'm going to die, so I might as well get everything I can now. I might as well leave these relationships. I might as well stab this person in the back. I need to accumulate as much as I possibly can before, before it's over. Um... I need to live my best life now. I need to live for the moment. For tomorrow we die. And Paul actually says that is a, that's to be expected for an unbeliever. If the resurrection isn't true, eat, drink, and be merry. Because this is the best you have. Um, Christians, we have shaped this a little bit differently, for sure, but there also seems to be a great deal of misunderstanding and misinformation about the Christian view or the biblical view of what comes next. We have views of heaven and hell that are more based on, on literature than they are on scripture. Uh, they're more based on uh, the views that we got from cartoons, you know, from Bugs Bunny and the hell of ironic punishments. I don't know if anybody else remembers that, where he has to eat all the apple pies. Porky Pig has to eat all the apple pies. Uh, and then he gets so sick of apple pies and, you know, whatever. Simpsons did a riff on that where Homer has to eat donuts and he finishes all the donuts in hell (laughs) and he's like, more. (laughs) Sorry. It's amazing. Um, um, But our view of what happens next does indeed affect how we live right now. It affects the mission. It affects affects the whole substance of what we value, what we give value to, what is of critical need, what will last, what is futile. Um, so here's the good news. Paul does not only not want the Thessal- uh, Thessalonians to remain ignorant, he doesn't want us to be ignorant of this as well. Um, so every ancient belief has this concept. Children of the 80s and 70s, if you remember um, uh, Clash of the Titans, uh, the, the idea of the afterworld, the underworld, 
Um, every ancient culture, every ancient view had this idea of the land of the dead. Uh, this is what this is Sheol in the Old Testament. Uh, this is Hades in the New Testament. The idea of the land of the dead. This is not; those do not equal hell. We'll get to this in just a second. Everybody had this concept of the land of the dead, and a common illustration of that um, was. Uh, it's kind of this disembodied spiritual realm where you just kind of roam. This is why land was very important. If you were buried with your ancestors, you walked with your ancestors in the land of the dead that was always tied to the land that you were on. This is why all of that was critical in the ancient world. Uh, a common metaphor for this was to be asleep. Um, and so when you think about this idea of the land of the dead, uh, and then you, you kind of put that in with the promise of the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about, it, it, it hardly seems to match up. Um, but Paul assures us that what is in store for those who are in Christ is more than just falling asleep. It's more than just the land of the dead. And it is in fact, it, it, it is in fact beyond the land of the dead. Um, and it changes not only the way we view death, but it changes even the way that we grieve death. So uh, stay with me on this because this is going to be newer. Um, uh, but it makes, I, I, this is a newer thing for me even to study, but that we also have this when we talk in, our, in the Apostles' Creed. Um, but we believe, and Paul brings us to light here, what we say in the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus died and descended to the dead and then rose again bringing with him those who have fallen asleep. John gives us this vision in Revelation 1.18. He says that Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last uh, and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So, this, this will be good to stock up all your questions for next week. This image here, this maybe reality, this event, that Jesus died. And when he died, he didn't go hang out in the throne room of heaven, but that he actually entered into the land of the dead. And then on the third day, he walked out of what had been a prison with the keys. Victorious over the last enemy. Victorious over the prison that was death and Hades. And then he brought back with him those who had been held captive. And he is bringing and will bring them to the land of the living. Now, chronology on this. I don't know. How long does it take? I don't know. Does it seem like we just stop and it's all on hold for a while? No idea. Geography. Well, okay, well, where is this place? No idea. No idea. But what is accomplished? Ah, good idea. This is the result. Christ rose from the dead. Not dead just necessarily like physical state, but dead the location where we were held captive. He walked out of the land of the dead with the keys. And not only that, but he also says there will be a future and full reality. He rose from the grave, and, and what we see is death, and this world, and those present kingdoms are not all there is to be. There will be more. 
Now, does this mean that we don't grieve death? No. Absolutely not. It doesn't, it doesn't mean we go, ah, you know what? Don't grieve death because one day we're in a better place. No. We grieve death. In fact, I would suggest that Christians grieve death even more because this is not the way it was supposed to be. Death had no place in the original design of God's kingdom. And so we grieve death because we know that this was not part of God's good creation. But, as Paul says here, we don't grieve without hope. We grieve as those who believe, yes, this is not the way it was supposed to be, but we also grieve as those who know and believe and trust that it will not stay this way. And here's what else is unique about this. This is not just Paul's opinion. He actually says this is a special revelation from God. Let's get back to the text. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul says that this is declare a a word, uh, declare to you by a word from the Lord. Um, This is a special revelation from God. We don't know if this came to Paul in a vision, if this is something Jesus taught that that just maybe wasn't written down. We don't know. Uh, But Paul gives more authority, speaks more confidently about this revelation than anything else. The resurrection is for all who are in Christ Jesus. Death is not the end. Now, some modern scholars have looked back when we talk about the resurrection, when Christians talk about the resurrection, some modern scholars have a tendency to look back and say, well, we know now with scientific method and all of the stuff that we have now, we know that when you die, you stay dead. And obviously in the first century, they didn't understand that. And that's the way that they kind of talk about the resurrection. Let me assure you, People in the first century, even though their dial, they only had dial-up speed, it was like AOL, Google was a fledgling company back then, you couldn't, you couldn't look it all up, um, but they did know that when somebody died, they stayed dead. I know they didn't have all the fancy technology we have, but they did get that. Some also, some scholars look back and say, well, when we talk about resurrection, we're talking about the spirit of Jesus and the, and, the, and the life of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus is with us. It's not necessarily that he got up physically, but the spirit of Jesus. And what's really important is that we, as a community together, we have the spirit of Jesus. Let me assure you here again, uh, all ancient religions, including Judaism, had words for the spirit or like the ghost uh, of somebody, the spirit of somebody. Um, they had words that they would use in those terms. They also had a word, a concept of somebody dying and coming back to life fully, and that word was resurrection. They had a future concept of one day there will be a resurrection, but they didn't have like a a place where they applied that. When they saw Jesus after he was killed, they they didn't use the term spirit of Jesus. They used the term resurrection, that he was dead and that he came back to life. And what we see here 
is that uh, when they described what would, uh, not only what would happen to Jesus, they used the term resurrection. And what Paul is saying is not only does that happen to Jesus, but the resurrection will happen to followers of Jesus. They use the same terms. So that as it was with Jesus, so would it be with those who are in him. That there would be resurrection. Now, moving forward, I promise we're going we're to tie this all together. Sometimes we hear this passage and we, we um, when we talk about the end of the world, uh, the worst way, in my view, in my uh, humble opinion, the worst way to interpret these types of passages is to try to string together certain events to figure out when this is going to happen. Paul is very gracious to us in the very next verse after this and says, that's not for you to know. Um, and then we, you know, we have a tendency to kind of fearmonger world events that have been happening uh, all along, and then we get people riled up about the end of the world. And I, I believe that's the worst way to interpret these passages. The best way to interpret these passages, again, I believe, is to look at what is going to happen and why this should be an encouragement to the followers of Jesus. First thing that we see here is the culmination of all things is to be in the presence of Jesus. We will be with him forever. If you were to describe heaven and you list all these great things and we're going to be snow skiing and it's going to be 70 degrees out and there won't be any mosquitoes and on and on and on and on and on and we can ski down the mountain straight to the beach and the water will be, I don't know, whatever, 80 degrees, perfect temperature and we'll never sunburn. Oh, glory be. Uh, and all this all on and on and on and on. And, and then and there's no Jesus, then we have not described heaven. Eternity is the presence of Jesus. The culmination of all things is Jesus. It is being and basking in his presence. And this is what's important as we understand this, what, what's happening here. Jesus did not come to earth to tell us how to get to heaven when we die. Jesus came to earth and called us to follow him and what that means is we follow Jesus through death and into the resurrection. We follow him into this new heaven and this new earth, into resurrection. And that begins now. All right, um, for, just, for just a minute, I'm going to get speculative. Um, it's, I think it's informed speculative, but speculative nonetheless. Uh, and if you want clarity, write these down. You can ask them next week or we can go grab coffee. Jesus, upon his death on Friday, enters into the land of the dead. He doesn't immediately go to the throne room. He enters into the land of dead. Uh, he does not descend to hell. Hell is a future kingdom, a final judgment. He walks out of the dead uh, the land of those who are asleep, um, so that he experiences everything that we would experience uh, upon dying. And on Sunday, Jesus exits the land of the dead, Sheol, Hades. He walks out with the keys and invites the God-fearers to follow him out into the land of the living. To exit that uh, realm of speculation, that just, it makes sense, I think, when you see that, 
to exit that realm and enter into Paul's revelation and John's revelation and Christ's promise of one day um, is the idea that there is this intermediate state. Perhaps this intermediate state is the ethereal realm that we call heaven. Perhaps this is life after death. Uh, but this is not what Paul is talking about here, the return of Christ. And it's not what John in his full revelation talks about as the culmination of all things. The sleep, as Paul calls it, it might be heaven. This is life after death, but what we see is that there's even more. N.T. Wright talks about this as not the life after death, but life after life after death. Are you with me? The fullness of the resurrection. I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but I do know that when the trumpet sounds, the harvest is gathered those who are asleep, the dead in Christ will rise. Those who are alive will meet him in the air. And he is not staying in the air. We meet him upon his descent. Where he will come and usher in finally and completely and fully the fullness of God's kingdom here on earth. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. For the follower of Jesus, no matter how dark the world gets or how dark we get, our hope is beyond this world. Frederick Buechner put it this way. The last thing, the worst thing is never the last thing. The full completion of this grand story is that Christ returns and he puts the world right and he puts us right and we dwell fully in his presence on earth for all of eternity. If Jesus rose from the grave, if Jesus walked out of the land of the dead, which I am utterly convinced that he did, then this is our certain hope. This is the culmination of all things. And so all injustices and wickedness and evil and schemes and gas prices and leaks in the basements and harassment and bad bosses and crooked politicians and fear-mongering and climate change and pandemics and loneliness and heartache and temptation and grief and insecurity and shame and self-loathing and jealousy and pride and social media and sickness and handicaps and sore knees and headaches and high cholesterol and cheap shots from opposing hockey teams and disappointment, these things will have no place in this future kingdom. It will be one of life and flourishing and health and hope and contentment and joy and justice and righteousness and worship and thanksgiving and our hearts will overflow with praise and gratitude and awe and wonder and amazement at, at the majesty of our great king and how gloriously this is reflected even in ourselves and in each other and the whole earth that we get to see as his beautiful kingdom. Christian, our hope is not in optimism. Our hope is not in, well, certainly it will get better. Our hope 
is in resurrection. The night will not win. The sun will rise. The morning will come. The trump shall resound. The Lord will descend. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So what are the implications then? Why is this encouraging? How does this matter right now? Too often, far too often, Christianity is taught of trust Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die, and hopefully that's a while from now, right? And then you have this weird relationship with the law. Do I do these things? Do I not do these things? How do I? I want to make sure that I get in, but I don't want to give away too much. But one day on that great getting up morning, God's going to get me the heck out of here, and I will go and be with him and leave this old claptrap behind to burn while we go to our glorious mansion in the sky. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Christian, we don't trust Jesus so that we can go to some ethereal, never-never land in a galaxy far, far away. When we follow Jesus, we follow him through death and into resurrection life now. Since we have been raised with Christ, we put these things to death and we put these things on. Go read Colossians chapter 3. We begin ushering in this new full resurrection kingdom right now in our practices, in our righteousness, in our desire for holy living, in our advocating for the poor and the outsider and the oppressed, our demands for justice in the world, our care for the earth, our repentance and trust, our humility, our worship. We actually join Jesus in the construction project of this new kingdom which is to come with the full confidence that unlike Highway 44, this, compl- this project will be fully completed. And who knows? Maybe that will be too. Although I think we'll be flying. I hope. We live now in anticipation of this one day. This analogy is the most helpful for me. Um, And my wife and I have different views on this, but how do you treat your home uh, when you're getting ready to go on vacation? Right? My wife has this opinion of like, we should get things clean so that when we come home, we come to a clean house. I do not have that view. My view is, get me out of here. Flinging through the doors, finding my swimsuit and whatever else, making sure I have enough pairs of socks, maybe, and flip-flops. And if I have flip-flops, I'm good. And, and get out of here, right? Um, if we see Jesus as getting us out of here, we tend to care less. How do you treat your home when you expect and anticipate important guests coming? Uh, I've shared this story before, but the first year we lived in our house, um, we were hosting Allison's family for Christmas, all of them. She's one of five siblings, parents, lots of grandkids. They were all coming up and staying with us. And man, we cleaned that bad boy like crazy. We got out the old toothbrushes and we, we you ready for this? We like vacuumed beneath the appliances and on the sides of the appliances. We scrubbed behind the toilet. And it was labor, but it was a joyful anticipation of who was coming. How much more? How much more do we labor and anticipate in this glorious, uh, joyful burden for our, the anticipation of our king's return? How much more do we love our neighbor? 
How much more do we give generously? How much more do we weep at destruction and injustice? How much more beauty can we pour into the world? And somehow all of this labor that we work at now, I don't know how, but somehow it makes it into this new creation. It is not a waste of time. The anticipation of Christ's return and resurrection should never cause us to care less about this present world. But if the resurrection is true, it ought to cause us to care so much more. There's a, there's a legend that Luther said, and I, 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 he, I think he put it on Twitter. Um, and I don't know if it was actually Luther or not, but, uh, but the point is, is very good. He said, what would you do if you knew that Christ was returning tomorrow? And Luther's response was supposedly, I would plant a tree. Um, now, there's a couple of reasons why he said that. One, if he knew that Christ was returning tomorrow, he would not stop laboring as if somehow now we can stop doing what we've been doing. I would continue to work and plant and garden and put beauty into the world. I wouldn't stop. But also, his thought was imagine what that tree will look like when the king of the universe, the one who gives, its, gives tree its beauty and its life, imagine what that tree will look like when the king returns and it meets its full flourishing. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not useless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly and a little more bearable until the day we leave it all behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Friends, one day, one day, we labor not in vain. Your acts of kindness and compassion, though unseen, are not in vain when you encourage, when you love, when you give joyfully, when you weep. These are not in vain somehow. These will make it into the future. And so we don't labor and love in vain, but in the hope of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for a hope, not just a hope that one day we get to leave, but a hope that one day all things, us included, will be made new. That we don't have a hope that's just good people go to a better place and bad people go to a worse place. We have the hope and the calling and the commission and the mission of resurrection new things that we put on, new shoes that we get to run in right now. And it affects everything. This kingdom one day will be fully in place. And God, full confession, I live often in forgetting this. I have a tendency to value this present kingdom more than the future. 
I have a tendency to get dismayed in the present kingdom more than hope in the future. So Jesus, would you say once again for us, call us, beckon us to follow you, not so that we can escape this world, but so that we can bear the image of the resurrection even now. And may that be hope to our souls. May we encourage one another with that. May we labor and love anticipating this glorious one day when all things will be made new. Stir our hearts, our affections, and our hope in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.